Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Maxwell Foxman, Assistant Professor of Media Studies and Game Studies in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Foxman's research focus is on the playful experience of early adopters of digital communications technology and the use of games and play in non-game environments. Foxman is currently working on two book-length manuscripts, one on the mainstreaming of game journalism, and another on early adopters of commercial immersive technologies. Thanks, Max, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in game studies. Well, um, I've played games my entire life. Um, I wouldn't consider myself the traditional gamer in the sense that I have never been intensely uh, dedicated to an, any major game aside from a bout with World of Warcraft, which I can always explain more. Um, however, uh, I actually went to grad school thinking that I would do work in comics. That's actually what I had done my undergraduate work in. However, in order to fulfill requirements, I, I walked into a video game theory course and um, sort of fell in love with the theories that were associated with games studies. And I soon found that those theories surrounding play and games had applications far beyond digital gameplay um, and really were mirroring activities that even I was doing in my everyday life using social media applications. So from there, um, I wrote my master's thesis about uh, Foursquare, the social media app, which was heavily gamified um, and uh, proceeded to get my PhD in communications with a focus in game studies. So. Uh, it's really a, a a lesson in taking your chances on classes that that catch your eye, I guess. So you've already explained that you your your expertise is game studies. So what is that discipline? That's a you know it's a it's a newer discipline in the academy. How do you define it? Well, uh, game studies is a, a, a field that is part of or or runs parallel to I would say media studies and communications. Um, it is a field that started really in the beginning of the 2000s uh, with a number of scholars trying to understand how to study digital games, which obviously were rising in popularity. Um, in order to do that, they looked, uh, scholars looked back primarily to uh, uh, theorists from the 1930s and onward, particularly, uh, uh, particularly uh, what, were, what are known as ludologists or play study scholars like Johan Huizinga, um, as well as thinking through how uh, games could be studied as media, as text. So the work of Janet Murray was very influential in that, uh, that time period. Um, however, since then it's really grown into its own interdisciplinary field, um, which touches so many others, particularly when it comes to communication, you have media psychologists who study games, you have uh, other forms of scholars that study uh, games, you have, uh, you have it in the humanities, you have it really in, in almost every discipline. So it's, 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 it's a growing field to say the least. So you're, you're not just interested in games, you're interested in play. So yes. how do you define play and why is play something that academics ought to be studying? Well, it's funny, I'm actually uh, working on the play chapter of one of the manuscripts you mentioned, so I got to go through that literature again, and it's amazing when you start to discuss play, there's rarely a field that hasn't been affected by it. So whether you're talking about education, psychology, um, uh, media studies, English, 
history, everyone has studied play in one form or another. Um, in my case, I, I am interested particularly in play when it comes to digital innovations, and I define it along three vectors. Um, the first is play as activity, which I think tends to be what we think of when we think of playing, you know, I'm going into the playground um, or I'm playing a game. I look at it as, I also define it as play as design. Uh, the design process, particularly the designing of games is particularly playful. Um, design, game designers can't make a good game unless they've play tested it and have iterated and experimented with it in order for it to come into sort of a, a, a format that will actually be playable by consumers. And then last but not least, I'm interested in play as expenditure or uh, what you might think of as political waste in the sense that unlike um, productive labor, play can actively be anti-productive. It's one of the few things we can do that can reject our regular sort of uh, workaday life. And what's particularly interesting to me when it comes to digital innovations is how early adopters uh, will will play with new technologies in order to understand them, but also how industry has really uh, adapted and incorporated that that wasteful activity into the productive developments of new innovations. So you you just were describing your interest in play within the context of digital technologies, yes. but how have digital technologies impacted play? Well, this is, this is something that I like to uh, use in my classes, so I'll, I'll borrow it for that if uh, you don't mind. But one of the things that I love to, to describe when it comes to play and digital technologies is when we play with digital technologies, particularly video games, we have such a sense of freedom. I, I usually ask people to take their mind back and think of something like playing a, a football game. And you can play as every single player, and that's really exciting. You have almost godlike powers, and everything feels serendipitous. But actually, everything's been programmed in advance. Every aspect of that game has been pre-programmed and decided for you. Even cheat codes, which famously can be used to subvert a digital game, um, were actually programmed by developers so that they could get to later levels of the game. And so when we think of digital technologies, we're dealing with environments where our play is heavily circumscribed. Um, one example that I like to give is if you think of a dating app like Tinder, uh, where you swipe left or swipe right to indicate interest or disinterest. I'm not actually sure which one is interested and disinterested, but if you do that, you can't swipe kind of right or kind of left. You can't swipe up or down. You can't do anything except what the algorithm and the UX and UI tell you to do. So that's, that's one example of how digital technologies really circumscribe our playful environment. So what's the magic circle of play? So the, the magic circle of play um, is, is one of the theoretical foundations, I would say, for ludology. It is, it is a heavily contested concept, which I can discuss more. However, um, in general, the magic circle is supposed to articulate a space and time of play. In other words, what makes play different from ordinary life, according to Johan Huizinga, who, who came up with this concept, is that uh, a magic circle of play occurs, which is distinct from ordinary life in terms of time and place. However, what's particularly interesting about Huizinga's concept and something that I like to emphasize when discussing him is that Huizinga saw the magic circle in all sorts of environments. Um, he, he described religious sites as magic circles of play. So we don't have to think of play as necessarily being fun, as necessarily being uh, imaginative, what we can think of is that play is, again, certain 
attitudes, activities, expenditure that exists to some degree outside of ordinary life, but can very much frame our everyday life as well. So one of your interests is gamification. Tell us what that term means. How do you define it? So I'll, I'll use a, a definition from one of my colleagues, uh, Deterting et al. Um, they, they define it, I think, quite well as the use of game elements in non-game contexts. Uh, this is, I would say, the traditional definition of gamification that arose right around the 2010s when the term started to become, so it started to come in vogue. Um, but it's worth taking apart each of those, uh, uh, each part of that definition a little bit. Um, when we say game elements, in other words, it's not using the entirety of a game or using every, having a, a, a winning or losing state, which you often see in traditional games, but rather taking elements that we associate with games, design elements in particular, and applying them to non-game contexts, since we often associate games with entertainment. Um, gamification implies by its very definition that uh, you will use elements in non-entertainment purposes such as uh, health, education, um, and uh, of particular interest for me is journalism. So a related term is punctuated play. What's that? So uh, punctuated play is a, a, a little bit of a neologism, I guess, that I, uh, I came up with to describe not so much the design elements of gamification, but rather the play experience of those who are using gamified applications and experiences. Uh, one of the interesting things about gamification as a term is it's heavily maligned, uh, particularly by designers. Um, and so I have a little paper where I go through that history, but also um, to, to, to get to your question, um, I often found in my own experience uh, as I was theorizing what gamification is that it, punctuates my everyday life with playful moments. So I might be uh, using a, uh, a fitness app and I notice, or, or, or an Apple watch, and I notice that I've gotten a badge for doing some sort of activity. And that playful rush is something that really I don't expect. It comes, it punctuates my life, but then it lingers, you know, and so much of my activity then is shaped or framed by these kind of punctuated moments of play that motivate me, keep me going, et cetera. So you mentioned that you are you have a particular interest in gamification in the context of journalism. Yes. So tell tell us about those that phenomenon and and why it's an important thing to study. Sure. So um, I'm interested in games and journalism in sort of two interrelated uh, formats. I'm interested in how journalists use games, and I'm also interested in how they cover games. Um, and and in some ways these things relate, in some ways they don't, but. What they probably share in common, and this is, uh, this is something that I think is really important when thinking about the history and profession of journalism in general, is journalism is very serious work. Journalists take their work seriously, and because they are, uh, you know, it's a profession where you don't necessarily need a degree to showcase that you are a journalist, um, often it's the very everyday practices, the, uh, the, the boundary work, to use the term, uh, of, of just doing journalistic work that, that illustrates what makes a journalist a journalist. So then, uh, and, and this is something that I've found in my own research, when you bring up the notion of games and play and you ask journalists about games, they don't necessarily want to integrate it into their work. However, a lot of journalistic work can be playful. And moreover, 
can use um, gamified and other game-related technologies. And this is something we're seeing increasingly. Uh, one great example uh, that, that people can look up is there's a, a wonderful visualizations project uh, done by the New York Times about how Breonna Taylor was killed. This uses uh, 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 CGI tools that are very common for game developers to recreate that scene. And it is both eerie and incredibly meaningful. Um, at the same time, you can find full-on games winning awards by journalists. Uh, uh, there's a, something called the Uber game, which I like to show students in my class, where uh, it's done by the Financial Times. It won an online news award, and it was based on interviews with Uber drivers and then created a choose-your-own-adventure where you have to try to make a living as an Uber driver in Sacramento. And it gives you this, this sort of firsthand experience of how difficult that experience is. So these are just a few of a few of the many, many examples of ways journalists play with their, their news in one form or another. Um, along with that, I am interested more broadly in how games are covered as they become a, a, a subject uh, of something that's, that's part of everyone's lives, essentially. They have been for almost 50 years now, but it seems like they're always growing up. Um, and so, so I, I, the, the work that I'm doing right now with a, a co-author from the University of Toronto is a book where we are looking at how mainstream journalists, games journalists from uh, elite games magazines, and even uh, uh, full-on enthusiast uh, freelancers are all covering games and dealing with the mainstreaming of games as a medium in popular life. Fascinating, fascinating. One of the other phenomena that's fairly recent is esports and professional and collegiate esports. So, how did that happen? How did it? How did gaming become professional, professionalized, and collegiate? Well, so similar to uh, similar to games journalism, uh, competitive gaming or esports has been around basically since the advent of video games. You can find professional tournaments happening in arcades in the 1970s. Um, there was a big push, uh, particularly outside of the US, for uh, a, a similar sort of Olympic style of, uh, of video game competitions uh, in the 2000s. Um, so so esports has always been around, I would say, uh, since, since gaming, uh, digital gaming has become popular. Um, what's changed, and, and, and this actually ties back to my comments on game journalism, is uh, how game publishers are interacting with other mainstream industries. So, so I actually think that we, even though it's called esports, what's, what's most fascinating about esports is how game publishers are now interacting with colleges, with um, major brands. If you go to major esports tournaments, you'll see Nike, you'll see Honda, you'll see MasterCard. Um, how they're using esports as a way to push their intellectual property. So uh, a company like Riot Games has partnered with Marvel Comics and with Netflix. So in other words, some of the biggest media industries in the world. And actually that's as much a part of esports as the professional competitive gaming that occurs. Um, so what's, what's also interesting from, a, from someone who's at the School of Journalism and Communication is this has opened up a lot of opportunities for students um, who can take their journalistic skills, and again, this is another example of the mainstream of game journalism, and now become professional casters or, or people calling esports games. So in many ways, 
esports is related to those that the same phenomena that I described with gamification that that I see with uh, with uh, game journalism in general. You can see that that sort of the collapse between games and everything else is is just so so prevalent. So tell us a little bit about the demographics of the players and fans of esports. Sure. So um, when it comes to esports uh, players, they they skew young. Um, this is something that uh, we're finding, uh, those of us at the esports and games research lab that I'm a part of, we, uh, we are doing work on collegiate esports. And what's particularly interesting about this is uh, most professional esports players, they might start in their uh, late teens, they might retire by their early 20s. So they are not necessarily going to universities to become professional esports players the same way that we would see with traditional sports. Um, when it comes to who who's viewing uh, esports, it, it, it's a it's a, a worldwide phenomenon with with I, I the it, with viewers in the hundreds of millions. In general, um, the largest demographic that uh, uh, of people watching it is eighteen to thirty five year old males. Um, what I, I think is fascinating beyond that is that demographic particularly watches something like ninety five minutes of streaming content or new competitive gaming content per day, uh, which would be the equivalent of watching, I'm a big soccer fan, so it would be the equivalent of watching one new soccer game every single day for your entire life, which sounds like heaven for me, but I don't think could happen with professional soccer players, nor would I have the time for. So you mentioned in passing that you're a member of UO's Esports and Game Research Lab. So tell us about that lab and what the researchers there do. Sure. So the Esports and Games Research Lab, or we're calling it the Eager Lab, um, is a, a collective of researchers um, from across the University of Oregon. Um, it, it involves myself, uh, Amanda Cody, and Henry Ware from the uh, School of Journalism and Communication, as well as John Clithrow from the Business School and Tara Fickle from uh, the College of Arts and Sciences, as well as our four incredible um, and industrious PhD students, Ander Ken, Jared Hansen, Brandon Harris, and Wasik Rahman. I want to mention them because they are doing a lot of the legwork of our research and really are the backbone as much as any of us are. Um, I, the, the lab itself is looking primarily at college level esports and how esports is institutionalizing within universities and colleges. Um, what that consists of methodologically currently uh, is doing interview work with players, administrators, directors to get a sense of how uh, of the culture of, of hurdles, of, of opportunities, uh, all of which are occurring as esports is being adopted by so many different universities. Um, at the same time, we are planning other work, uh, for instance, survey work and other work that I think will be really pointing uh, towards a, a hopefully a multi-institution study. Uh, we have some partners at other universities around the uh, U.S., and and that's going to be our focus, I think, for the the years ahead. Another area of your interest are the early adopters of virtual reality technology, VR technology. Who are they, and and why is it worth studying them? Well, um, so so. Early adopters of, of VR are an interesting group. Um, this is based on my dissertation work, uh, and, and I was specifically looking, therefore, at early adopters in New York City 
from roughly 2016 to 2018. Um, that group was, was particularly interesting. Uh, there, there are some geographic differences when it comes to early adopters, but what makes them most fascinating is they are enthusiasts of VR technology. They had often imagined a future where they could enter into a matrix style metaverse. Um, they also often were entrepreneurs um, interested in finding ways to capitalize on this new technology as the next wave, the next, as sort of the, the, the hype cycle involving VR was cresting. Um, so I was particularly interested in this group because of their knowledge base, because of their enthusiasm, and because of their playfulness. So uh, in particular, what I thought was fascinating, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to study these early adopters was to see how and if they played with VR technology. And I found that they were quite playful along those three vectors that I described earlier. Um, what, what is probably a useful side note is, uh, in thinking about who they are is that because uh, in order to do this, they had to have the time to expend on this new technology. So a lot of my research looks at, for instance, how uh, they would congregate in meetups in New York City and, and sort of celebrate this new, celebrate VR before having to go to trains that would get them home past midnight uh, in another state. Uh, they often had enough money to spend on this fairly expensive uh, set of headsets. And, and so there are interesting questions of access and privilege as well as how their play fed and really cemented certain aspects of VR, particularly that it is considered still primarily a gaming device. Um, in part because the people that knew how to use it, that had that background, um, that had that privilege to use it, also came from a gaming or programming world uh, in general. So uh, I'm doing this interview with you through Zoom. We live in the COVID era. How has the COVID crisis impacted journalism and uh, digital commu uh, communications? What are some of the impacts? Well. So I'll, I'll speak from my, my area of expertise. Uh, and and I, what I find is that it, it is a really interesting shift is how games are being perceived and how game related tools are being perceived uh, because of the pandemic. Um, I, I found it fascinating, for instance, that we are seeing journalists and really the public in general turning towards games and virtual worlds and virtual spaces as areas of congregation. Uh, probably the most notable example at the beginning of the pandemic was uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez meeting her uh, constituents in the game Animal Crossing. However, I think that that points to a, a real shift um, and a real opportunity for both communication scholars, journalists, and game studies scholars to rethink and to think how uh, virtual worlds, including teleconferencing software like Zoom, uh, could best work for us and whether some of the tools that I described, for instance, those gamified tools might be um, might be something that we can start to understand better in, in the journalistic context. Uh, the other thing that I'll that that I can definitively say about how journalism has changed, uh, aside from moving into these virtual worlds more, is that um, coverage of games has increased. Um, that the game industry itself has become an area of focus in part because it is doing better than almost any other media industry. Uh, Sales for video games, uh, I think, went up 10% in April of 2020, whereas in uh, you know the, during the sort of the the biggest uh, the biggest dip in the economy that we had, uh, game sales were going up, and um, 
And 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 so I I find it really interesting that that we're covering games more. At the same time, some of the tried and true frames of games uh, that journalists use, particularly dystopian frames of games having a negative impact on our life, negatively influencing us, being addictive, those are still existing. I mean, if you looked at the Times of January this year, they had a whole article about screen time in games and how that might be impacting our kids. Um, at the same time, that is that has been a concern that if you go back to the 2000s, 1990s, 1980s, you'll see the same exact concern. Um, it just seems to be something that dogs uh, video game coverage for better or for worse. So in addition to being a scholar, you are also a professor, you're a teacher. So tell us, um, what do you teach or tell us about a, a course that you're teaching or have recently taught? So um, the, the next course that I'm teaching in the spring, which I'm pretty excited about and is certainly related to the topic that we're, we're, we're mentioning today is a, a class called Studying Games, which I obviously would love to see students joining. Um, it is a class where we go into the history of games, the culture of games, the economy of games, and of course, some of those gamified um, elements that I mentioned. We, we have a whole section called Games and World, where we can look at um, some of these, these uh, interesting intersections. What I, what I particularly love about the class is encouraging students to take uh, non-traditional formats in how they present their work, whether that's doing something as a live stream on Twitch, which is a popular streaming service for gamers, or um, making a documentary, which uh, my colleague Amanda Cody taught the class last year and actually had a student who made a wonderful documentary about esports. So that that is a class that I think showcases sort of the whole world of game studies uh, in a really interesting way and would introduce students to that that entire world. So Max, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be my last question. Sure. What attracted you to the University of Oregon? So um, <laughs> I think it's it's probably pretty rare for uh, 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 someone finishing up their PhD to see a dream listing of their job, uh, uh, which I just had happened to see when I when I was looking for jobs. Um, to have a, a, a job call that mentions specifically research in journalism and games is pretty darn rare uh, and was something that that I saw and was immediately sort of attracted to in terms of the position. I, I would say having arrived um, and, and especially during the interview process, what I found really amazing about uh, UO and particularly the SOJC is it's, it's horizontal structure. Um, we don't have departments at the SOJC, which is particularly useful for someone in game studies. As I said, I'm sort of naturally interdisciplinary. And um, immediately I started working with other faculty in PR and advertising and data analytics. Uh, we have a paper coming out in the next couple of weeks that was the result of that initial collaboration. And I, I, I sort of instinctively knew, and it's thus been proven true, that, that this would be a really amazing opportunity to feel like I could reach across those disciplinary boundaries and really get the most out of my area of research. Well, Max, it's been a, a great pleasure talking to you. Fascinating work, uh, just a fascinating field, and your, your, the stuff you're working on is so exciting. Thank I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you again for having me. This has been a real pleasure. I've been speaking with Maxwell Foxman, Assistant Professor of Media Studies and Game Studies in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. Thanks for watching. Thank you.